What is going on, everyone? Welcome to A Theology of Hustle. I am your host, Curry Blandford, and in today's episode, I am talking to Claire Gibson. So I ran across Claire on Instagram, uh, which is where I'm getting most of my people these days. <laughs> I ran across her on Instagram, and uh, yeah, I saw that she was about to be releasing this book. Uh, it's called Beyond the Point. And what's cool is that I got to interview her, and today is actually the launch day. Like, if you're hearing this, her book is launching, so or has launched, you know, depending on how far out you are. But, uh, I, it was such a pleasure to get to read this novel, and we talk a lot about my novel reading. I'm not the best novel reader ever. Uh, I could be the worst. That's definitely a possibility. But I really enjoyed Claire's novel. I enjoyed reading it, and I enjoyed even more so talking to her about it. I think the intentionality behind her novel is really crucial and, and important. And, uh, you hear in this interview how important it is and why she did the things that she does in her book. It's, it is a novel that I think you should check out. Uh, it's really cool. It's about West point. It's about sort of this culture that I didn't really know anything about. Uh, and I sort of, in, you enter in, uh, to the lives of, of, of her characters in just a, a profound way. And I think it, it changes you, which is what good, uh, reading should do. And so I want to encourage you to check it out, but this interview, we get into so much more than just the novel. We get into, uh, her writing process, some of that. We even get into the you know, into racism and adoption and uh, all sorts of just uh, really great topics. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, yeah, she's very insightful. I found a lot of uh, times in this interview where I was even convicted of things and like sort of had to really think through my my own stuff. And uh, yeah, I think you're really going to get a lot out of hearing from her. So uh, if you don't mind, make sure and leave me a rating and review on this podcast if you can. Just helps to get the word out a little bit. Uh, but also I'm going to leave links for you to go buy uh, the book at Annie Jones bookstore down there in uh, in. Uh, Georgia, G of Hustle, and yeah, I hope you really enjoy this interview with Claire. Well, Claire, it is so nice to officially meet you via the internet. Uh, we've talked on Instagram a little bit, but uh, nice to meet you. Oh, thank you. It's really good to meet you too. And yeah, Instagram is good for few things and this is one of them <laughs> yes there there's the downsides but there's some really good upsides too right so very dark downsides <laughs> yes uh cool all right well let's uh let's just jump off with uh having you introduce yourself to everyone great thanks yeah so like curry said my name is claire gibson and i am an author based in nashville tennessee and i'm a new author it's still kind of hard for me to admit that as a title for myself but um my first book is called beyond the point and it comes out on april 2nd i grew up at the u.s military academy at west point my dad was a active duty officer for 27 years and we had the great privilege of living at west point for about nine of those years i was born there we moved away we moved you know at a speed illegal on most major highways just jumping every two years to different uh, army posts. And then when I was 10 years old, my dad um, got a job back at West Point. And so we moved there. And so from fifth grade until 10th grade, I got to live on campus with all the perks of being a cadet with none of the pitfalls. So I had this great experience of learning all about what they were doing and kind of watching from the sidelines and being really inspired by their work. Uh, obviously, we lived there during the attacks on 9-11, and so that was a huge turning point for everyone in that community. And then in 2003, my father retired from the Army, and we moved to South Carolina. He took a civilian job at this podunk little town uh, in Clinton, South Carolina. And I finished high school there begrudgingly, and then we moved. I, I went to college uh, at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. Okay. Nice. And then uh, came to Nashville after college. So I taught history for a few years through Teach for America and then kind of looked back on my life and thought, what am I doing? I'm 
20, I was 25, married, but not really sure what I wanted to do with my life <laughs> as my adult life. Yeah. Um, and I'd spent most of my life trying to convince myself that I was important and <laughs> that I mattered and wanted to do something that, you know, my family would be proud of, that my dad would be proud of. And, you know, growing up at West Point, you, you're looking at statues of presidents and generals. And so yeah, right. I just had this idea in my mind that I needed to be, um, I needed to do something with my life that accounted. Mm-hmm. So um, being a teacher, I think is a extremely high calling. And, but at the end of three years of teaching, I was pretty burnt out and um, did some soul searching. And the truth was writing had been this through line through my whole life that I had always done on the side and people paid me to do it all through college and through, you know, even when I was doing Teach for America, Teach for America was paying me to do some writing on the side. And, and then all of a sudden I'm like, I should just do that. I guess I enjoy that. <laughs> right. Sort of paying me even when I don't ask for it, the worst. And um, yeah. And then I started writing and this novel slowly was born out of that commitment to try to become a writer. Wow. Yeah. Okay. There you go. I have so many questions. So I don't know that I've ever, uh, like you're the first sort of, and I don't know if I can use this term. Is this incorrect for me to use, but like an army brat? Cause I know, yeah. like, is yeah. that, is that okay for me to use though? Can I say that? Totally. Okay. Okay. Yes, okay. Okay. I wasn't sure the rules. It's in term of endearment. Okay. All who claim it. Yes. Okay. Sir. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Good to know. Uh, so can we talk a little bit just about what that's like because I am so far removed from that I have no idea sure yeah well since you know the draft ended in 1973 and since that time the army has become this all-volunteer force which is a wonderful thing but it also has created a really big divide within our nation between people who are serving and those who don't choose that path and so I think more than ever there are a lot of people that know that army community and then there's this wide swath of america that um doesn't and i just said swath which really should be swath but it's fine <laughs> um i'm a writer i know words. <laughs> um so so yeah it doesn't surprise me that maybe that's a community you're not familiar with but to me you know it was a really great way to grow up my dad was serving in a peacetime army so it was a very different experience than what children today experience with their ch- parents serving he did ROTC in college and so he walked into his marriage um, to my mom with no debt at all I think there are a lot of students today that just assume college has to be really expensive but there really are ways to kind of use the tools at your disposal particularly through service to pay through that uh, expensive college experience and for me, you know, there was this awesome experience of getting to see the whole country. I never lived abroad. My sister did. My sister was born in Germany, but we lived mostly stateside. Uh, my dad took an academic route. And so he, the army paid for him to get a PhD. And he, and that's why he ended up teaching systems engineering at West Point because he had oh, okay. this training in engineering and he worked at the Pentagon a lot. So he was sort of in the white collar army, so to speak. Um, but at the same time, he also had this awesome background. You know, he did serve as a soldier and or as an officer for soldiers and went to the field for training a lot. And a lot of that happened before I was born in his sure. career. Mm-hmm. But um, we were constantly around a very diverse community because the army attracts people from all over the place. And we had the experience of living in, you know, all over the country. And that I think has been really, really positive for me. You know, the stereotypes about army brats are very true. And that is you can make a really good first impression and you can make friends with anybody uh, because you have to, you have to learn really quickly to just dive into friendships because sometimes, you know, you move somewhere and you only live there for two years. Yeah. So if you don't just go ahead and make a friend on day one, you may not have any friends during that two year stint. And then you move to the next place for two years. And so God has been really good in the last two years. There have been some friendships from way back in my childhood that he has brought back around into my life, which I never thought I would get those back. You know, you kind of imagine as an army brat that you're just kind of cut off from your past. And 
it's been really cool to see him bring those relationships full circle and to get some of those friendships back as an adult. My husband is from Nashville, grew up in Nashville and totally has roots. And so it's been really cool to kind of tap back into my roots again. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so you almost come from two different worlds, so to speak, right? As far as like growing up, you know, you moving a lot and him sort of planted in the. Oh yeah. Place. It's yeah. a very different worldview. And now that we're parents together, it's really interesting to figure out. I think he had a great childhood experience and I had what I considered a great childhood experience. Yeah. And we're both wanting to recreate the good parts of our childhood experiences right. with also some limitations because he's not in the army. We're not going to move every two years right. <laughs> and I'm not going to live in the suburbs. So <laughs> um, we're just working on figuring out how we create something new for Sam. Yeah. That's marriage, right? That's marriage. Bringing those two, bringing those two worlds together. That's good. Right. Um, so from what I understand, my limited knowledge of, of the army and the military, there's, there's the military, which it's its own sort of uh, genre, but then there's another sub genre, which is like military Christians. Is that mm. true? Is that sort of a sub genre within the military, so to speak? I think so. You know, I can only speak to my experience. Sure. And, yeah. and again, my dad was in the army from 1976 until nine, uh, 2003. Okay. So we're talking, you know, a long time ago now, but yeah. from what I can gather, and I still have a lot of friends that are active duty army. Now there is a really strong contingent of people within the army that consider themselves Christians. And I think the reason is, you know, America stands up for a lot of Judeo-Christian ideals. Sure. Equality and um, that everybody has dignity and everyone has a voice and justice. And I think there is definitely a, a sense. And within my family, it was taught very early on that, you know, you want to be a person that serves God. And part of the way that you can serve God is by serving your neighbor. And by and part of the way you can serve your neighbor sure. is by serving your country. Yeah. So I definitely think that there is a draw in within that army community towards the Lord. And then, you know, even if you're not drawn to service because of your faith in God, I think that once you're in the service, sometimes people that maybe didn't have faith in God suddenly are like, Oh crap, I need, I need something more to get through this really difficult time. Um, particularly as the, our nation went to war, I think my parents serving at West Point saw a lot more cadets turning to them for advice and turning to them for wisdom and questions about their faith and, you know, what's the meaning of life and what happens if my, my friend dies and what happens if I die, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just really serious at a, at a much bigger level. And, and so I think in that community, there's just a natural reason to have more serious conversations right. in other communities. Yeah. I don't want to not jump on the novel train too early, but is that sort of the inspiration for sort of the, the character, some of the characters in your story? Right. I mean, reminds me of the Bennett's, you know, sure, uh, for instance. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. Definitely. So the, the novel, it definitely started out of my heart of wanting to write a, a novel. First of all, I just wanted to write a novel. Yeah. And West Point is this gorgeous, mysterious place that some people know about, but maybe have never been to, or maybe have never even heard of. And the way that I went about it is by first interviewing about 20 different women that attended West Point while we lived there. Mm. So a lot of the cadets that we knew while we were living on campus went on to do incredible things with their lives, whether through you know service and in war, but also many got out of the army and now are doing incredible things in the civilian sector. And so I interviewed these women and heard their stories and anecdotes and some were awesome and hilarious and others were really heartfelt and, and hard. And, and I took all of those stories com compiled with my childhood experience where I was, yeah. you know, a, a fly on the wall watching these conversations happen in my living room between yeah. my parents and these cadets that they mentored. And I was, you know, I tried to write something that did justice to their experience. And so, yes, a lot of the characters in the novel are, are real. And I've said this before, they're all composite characters, but sure. everything in the novel happened to somebody. Huh. Um, and so that, that is kind of 
where I land on that. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I, I found I found it fascinating because I think if I'm remembering my dates correctly, were they freshmen when 9/11 happened? Uh, the... So they were freshmen in the year 2000. 2000. Okay. Sophomores when sophomores. 9/11 happened. Okay. So I graduated high school in 01. So okay, uh, I would have. I was like, I was just so there with all of that happening, you know, at the same time I was a freshman in college. So, um, it was fascinating. Cause that's a little bit before your time of, of college. Correct. Yeah. I was in high school yeah. when nine 11 happened. So these women in the novel are about four years older than me. Yeah. And I think there's just something really interesting about that specific, uh, class of West yeah. Point. Um, they were part of the class of 2004. Not only were they at West Point when nine 11 happened, but when their class graduated, you know, there's a few years of training that happen after college that kind of prepare you for deployment. Yeah. And so by the time the class of 2004 were ready to deploy, the U.S. was sending a surge of troops to Iraq and Afghanistan in the troop surge, trying to kind of turn the tide of the war. And so the class of 2004 is one of the most hard hit classes mm. um, in terms of wartime casualties of any class at West Point. Interesting. And okay. so that's something that you wouldn't know necessarily unless you were a West Point grad, but that group is very tight and is very, has, has carried the burden of war more than any. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's cause, and it, it was perfect because nine 11 defines us as a country certainly, but how much more the military personnel that, you know, I mean, this has like been the defining moment of like the last 20 years for them in general. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to talk about, honestly, like I, nine 11 is one of those things now where it's so, so big in our minds because we lived through it. But yeah. then now we've got kids that were not even born when it happened, right. you know, going to the wars that that event started. Right. Um, hmm. But to, to write about it is really hard. And sometimes I even worry that people who aren't interested in the military won't be attracted to this novel. And I, I hope that they resist that urge to kind of set it aside because it's not really a war novel. Right. It's a, it's a novel about friendship. Yeah. And these friendships that I saw happen in that time were so strong. And 9-11 just happened to be the impetus for why that friendship kind of took off if that makes sense yeah totally totally uh i do i and i was that was going to be one of my next points your character development is awesome i i like identified so much with them like i still feel like they're friends of mine you know in a lot of ways yeah well especially especially hannah right she's from austin uh i'm from texas originally like okay i see a lot of her life and sort of how I grew up and, and all of those things. And she's sort of this rock, you know? Um, yeah. But your character development, it's really, yeah. Fascinating. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Like, yeah, the details, you know, I feel like I cheated as a novelist because I have all these incredible (laughs) women that I could turn to and say, how did you feel in this moment? Or, you know, one of those women that I feel like God brought back into my life after all these years, um, is my friend, Jen, and she actually was stationed at Fort Campbell, which is about 30 minutes north of Nashville. And I was getting toward the end of the manuscript and I had her read it. And then she said, you need some more. You need some more. <laughs> and so she sat down and she told me all these stories. And I'm like, oh, what did you say? You know, tell me more. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I had the really great privilege of, of being able to tap people and really ask what it was it really like. But then, you know, I'm a lot like Hannah. I, she's a character that wants to achieve a lot and wants to impress her family and wants to do right for for God. And that doesn't work out for her in Mm. this novel, the way that she thought it would. Right. And I think she is a lot like me where you follow all the rules and then life goes off the rails and you're like, wait a second, I was playing the game. I was playing the game I was taught (laughs) and why am I losing? Um, and I think that that's something when you have had faith from a young age and you want to live a life that honors God and then you, and then your life goes off the rails, it's really, it's a really challenging time to 
decide, do I believe this or did I believe this because I wanted a result? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's the point of your whole novel, right? With the, along with this friendship comes the, the good times, right? There's laughter, there's joy, and then there's like heartache and there's struggle and there's like questions. And I think like we can all see ourselves in those places at certain times because you're right. I mean, it's not like you do A, B and C, you follow God, you do all the right things, you don't smoke or whatever that means to you. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's all going to be like hunky-dory right roses yeah in yeah. fact it, it's guaranteed that it won't, won't be. <laughs> right yes um, yes right but somehow the christian church does a really bad job of trying of teaching us that it that we get some bargain and that it's just not how it goes unfortunately yeah why do you think that is why does the christian church do a bad job yeah oh man maybe that's too big of a question for you but i love talking about this stuff so I think it's something I think a lot of adults in the Christian church live out of fear. Mm. They're afraid of their children making mistakes. Yeah. They're afraid of their children hurting, which that's not wrong to be right. to not want your kids to hurt. Right. And so I think there's a lot of you know telling kids this is right and this is wrong and you do this this way and God will bless you. That's the God's way of doing it. And, and we want to honor God. You know, you, you say all of those things because you're trying to protect your child from pain. Right. And, and I think in a lot of ways, doing life God's way, trying to honor God does protect us, mm. but not from pain. Right. Yeah. It doesn't protect us from pain and it doesn't protect us from ourselves either. Yeah. You know, like we make mistakes and we do things that are dumb and we, and we do things that feel smart in the moment and then turn out to be dumb or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I was really grateful to be raised by a set of parents that didn't become Christians until late in their lives. Oh, really? And so they, they taught me faith in a way that was way more dynamic mm. and um, way more about your heart and way less about your behavior. Yeah. Um, and that, that set me up. But, but it still was difficult in my life when, you know, things went off the rails as yeah. they do. Yeah. Well, it seems like instead of trying to protect our children from pain, we should equip them to handle that pain appropriately. Right. right. Yeah. Or take that pain to God. Take yeah. That pain right. To our community um, yeah. rather than pretending it doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. That's a, this is a little, this is a tangent, but <laughs> that's how we are with the like adoption and foster care, right? A lot of people are scared of like bringing stuff into their house that might be hard, you know? And yeah. you're like, I don't want my kids thinking everything's just fine all the time, right? Like hard stuff happens and people go through stuff and we want to be people that like are willing to step into that as opposed to right. avoid it, you know? Right. And I think that's something about the army community that I really love is that mm. that's a community that's running toward hard things. Yeah. Right. Yep. They're not afraid of tackling challenges. Now, some people you have like the narcissist that's like has the hero complex, but sure. a lot of the people that I interacted with at West Point and in the army community have that sense of someone's got to do this. Someone's right. got to do the hard work. Right. And so in, in it, the context of faith, I think you're exactly right. Like hmm. we, if not us, who? Yeah. Right. But. Yeah. Very well said. Very well said. I, uh, so I have a question about the book. What, can you talk me? Okay. So what I really liked is the detail, right. In your book, like I could put myself in the situations alongside people, right. When they're at, uh, the Bennett's house, for instance, I can put myself there. I feel that like comfort and, and that sort of thing. I was interested in your choice to use profanity throughout the book. <laughs> I, I I didn't expect it. I appreciated it. I'll say that right off the bat. I appreciated it. I didn't expect it though. Did you, was there, yeah. Can you just talk about that? I don't even know what I'm asking. Sure. Well, I mean, I think obviously we've been talking a lot about faith in the last couple minutes. So this yeah. book is not a Christian book. Sure. And it was important to me at the outset of writing it to decide is this a Christian book or is this not a Christian book right. in terms of, um, you know, what book shelf is it going to go on? Mm -hmm. And I think the reason that I chose not to write it as a Christian book is because we don't live in a Christian world. 
we live in a we live in the world period and these women you know obviously we talked about hannah's character and that she has a background of faith uh, but the other women you know they struggle with what Mm -hmm. they believe and and they don't know what they believe and so it was really important for me to be able to write a novel that was just true to what people experience and not pigeonholed into you know someone has to have a conversion experience right at the end or there has to be some pretty bow that ties everything up. So profanity for me, I happen to be someone who cusses more than I probably ought. To. Yes. Wait, is that bad? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I'm all good. I'm all good with it. So, but I know we have differing opinions. Ago, before and... we started with these boxes, you heard me <laughs> saying how heavy they were. I know, but I, yeah, sorry. I have, I have a whole philosophy around that sort of thing, but, uh, Yeah. I mean, it goes back to that thing of like, why do we teach kids this is right and this is wrong? Right. right? So profanity. What is it? What's what's the quote? Like, it's the lowest form of prayer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't think I've heard that one. I like it. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's definitely those are the words you go to when things hurt. Right. You're just like, dang. And my dad has the best profanity. When he joined the army, he decided he didn't want to use profanity and in a way it helped him stand out as someone because so many people within the army cuss all the time that when he didn't people were kind of like huh what's up with that guy um so he says son of a seahorse and seahorse yeah he says a couple other ones but um (laughs) my mom was very sad about the amount of profanity in the in the book sure uh but it's just it is what it is you know this is these characters and sometimes this is what those are the words they would say. And sometimes they're the words I would say. Yeah. Well, there's a realness to it, right? I mean, if, yeah, it's just real life, I think. And if you ignore that side of things and sort of whitewash it, then, uh, you know, are you really giving a true experience, I guess, you know, so. Right. And these are college kids, ah, right. you know, yeah. and I think in college is when a lot of kids are trying out, like, yeah. how far can I push sure. the envelope, oh, yeah. envelope you know? Well, and not only are they college kids, they're college kids dealing with an extreme amount of adversity just being at West Point. I mean, when I was at college, we weren't doing PTs in the morning, you know what I mean? Or, you know, it's just like a, it's a different level of college than anyone else goes through, you know, right? in general. So what was your college experience like? Did you connect with friends that you still are in touch with today? Yeah, some, a couple. Uh, yeah, but not overwhelmingly. No. Uh, yeah. So I think it's going to be interesting uh, as social media continues to, to dominate Yeah. what kids today, what kind of relationships they will have leaving college. Yeah. Because I think it requires a lot of time and quality time together to develop meaningful friendships. And I'm not sure kids now are going to get that and even I didn't have a great you know I have several you know a handful of friends from college that I keep up with every now and then but what I found so attractive about these women that I wrote about was that their experience at West Point they had to have quality time like they were just out in the woods running around pretending to be in the army yeah and you know wet and cold and tired and those are the moments that you look back on and you go huh, that was actually kind of funny. Or like, yeah. you know, remember that time, I wonder if kids now are going to have memories to look back on or yeah. if they're going to be spending so much of their time on their phones that they don't have memories to look back on. It's a good question. I, yeah, I don't know. I, but I do think those, those relationships between your characters are forged in a different way than even, uh, you know, in either of our relationships would have been at a, at a college, right? Uh, exactly. Uh, yeah. So it's, I mean, there's even a different level, uh, you know, being at West Point versus other schools and your characters still drift away in some respects, right? Like life just gets busy, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times I look back and I wonder, I think everybody looks back at their college choice because it's such a big fork in the road. Right. And it's really easy to go, did I choose the right path? Because that sort of sets you up for who you meet and maybe who you marry and yeah. who your friends are and what you studied. And 
so many different things about your life. And so I also think it was really interesting to kind of start the novel from that place of how did these three girls choose even where they were going to go? Right. Um, because I look back on that choice for myself, even now, I mean, 10 years later, I'm still yeah. like, oh, did I choose the right school? And yeah. Know, and none of their stories look like they expected, I guess. Sort of like mine mine didn't either, you know? I mean, we all have our idealistic version of what life is going to look like, you know, when we're young, when we're 17, 18, right? And uh, most people, I would say, don't. It doesn't turn out like they thought, you know? Um, hopefully better. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, in the long run. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> It's cool. Uh, well, good. I, well, I really did enjoy the book. Like I said, I'll, I'll put it out there. I'll record it for everybody here. I don't know that I've read a novel since maybe high school. I like from, from front to back. Right. Hurry. So I, <laughs> I know it's right. <laughs> you can judge me. It's totally <laughs> I fine. I, I want to try. A lot of times I'll talk to people and they'll find out I'm a writer and yeah. I'll ask, oh, do you enjoy reading? And there's one of two responses. It's either, oh, yes, I love reading. Or it's, yeah, I just, you know, I don't have a lot of time right now. There's like one of those two responses. No one says they don't love to read. Right. But I wish they would. I just wish they'd go, I don't love reading. But I'm so proud of you. You did it. You I did it. Novel. I did it. And it's yours. And I'm grateful and... mine was one <laughs> the curse. It really did suck me in, though. It really did. And I think other novels would probably do the same thing if I gave them a chance. They would. Uh, I tried Gilead by... Uh, oh, you. I'm sorry. I love Marilyn Robinson, but Gilead is not going to break okay. the curse. I, so, I feel so much better because I was like, what am I doing? I felt like banging Annie, my head against the wall. Annie needs oh. to hook you up. There's a great book that just came out by this guy, John Kenny. Okay. My husband is kind of like you. Like, he struggles to read. Sure. Um, he bait and switched me for marriage. He totally told me he loved reading because he knew I loved reading. And then we uh, got married and he's like, just kidding. He's <laughs> a smart dude. I really like him. Yeah. Already, so he's good. great. Um, but anyway, this book, Talk to Me by John Kenny. Talk to me. Really good. My husband re- like sped through it. Really? I think he'd like it. Mm-hmm. You said Kennedy or Ken? Kenny. Kenny. John Kenny. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's I'm a funny more. writer. It's, it's sort of a... Uh, what happens when America's darling gets taken down by the social media mob? Oh, okay. There you go. All That's right. Good. Yeah. I, uh, I got one out. Well, see Annie's suggestion was Gilead. Oh no. Oh, I'm going to have to take it up with her. I struggle because she doesn't have chapters. Yeah. Marilyn Robinson. She just writes right on through. There's or no a narrative. Thing. I'm just kidding. I, I, I did not know what was going on. For like 50 pages. I I tried so yeah, hard. Yeah, it's a tough one. That's a tough one to start with. I and will I be honest. theology. I'm like a theology nerd, but man. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Claire. I'll have to so think off. Better. Well, Annie has great recommendations. <laughs> Tell me, like, I don't mean to diss Annie no, no, at no. all. Yes. My wife is on her, uh, on her monthly subscription. <laughs> so she gets the book from Annie every month. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. So we've, we've really liked that. Gilead, though, just wasn't my cup of tea. So uh, if you think of anything else, send them my way. So I sure will. I have a couple. I'll try it out. Okay, cool. So I, what I, a question I definitely wanted to get to was, I mean, you've written this novel. It's awesome. You've also written a lot of like just straight up random stuff all over the place, right? Like even on your bio on your website, you're like, I don't, there's not a genre, I guess specifically that you only write in correct right that's true i dug through some of your stuff and like you have some fascinating articles out in the world Uh, oh yeah yeah well uh, so there was the one about the the man who had been wrongfully convicted oh yeah and dume yeah that was like a powerful story oh my god oh wow thank you for reading that it was awesome it's funny thank you so for people that are listening you know that story um, was for this very small online magazine for private investigators that my friend runs. And she called me and she said, hey, can you write this story about a man who spent 27 years in prison for a murder that he did not commit? And I was just starting writing. 
Yeah. And I said, sure. Who am I? What am I doing? <laughs> what? So I go and meet this guy. And I remember walking into his car and getting into his car with him. And I'm like, Tim told me he was <laughs> not a murderer. But like, I am just getting Wait, in the car with this guy. So just like, to set this up, you're like, hey, can I interview? He was like, hey, come get in my car. Yes. He oh, was like, okay. meet me at Vanderbilt and we'll get in my car. We'll go this other place. Whatever. Anyway, wonderful man. Okay. Immediately put me at ease. Okay. Told me his story. And um, yeah, I, I tried my best on that story, but it was complicated. Uh, the complicated, as every wrongful conviction is. Sure. Know, there's a lot of sides and um but it was a really big privilege to be able to write that story and it taught me early on that my job as a writer is to tell other people's stories I think that's that's where my heart is you know there's a big wave right now of particularly in the Christian world of women writing memoir and writing kind of pseudo self-help and that could have dragged me in, I'm sure, because I've written some stuff like that on my blog. Um, but I'm really grateful for stories like that wrongful conviction story that helped me see beyond myself, because yeah. um, I think that's where the world really needs more of is other people's stories, not me holding myself up as anything. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And that sort of thing, and honestly, that sort of uh, genre of reading is much more my speed, I guess, like historical fiction type works or, or just, you know, uh, history or, or something like that. Uh, because it is like, there's something so tangible about people's stories that just like drag you in, you know, and you can, um, there's a, uh, geez, I'm, I've totally lost the word. There's an empathy that you can have. There's, you can put yourself in their shoes you know, you sort of take off your glasses and put theirs on for just a little bit of time, you know? Right. I mean, that's the beauty of reading Yeah, is that, I mean, you and I, I don't know you very well. So I'll say I, <laughs> I think about myself pretty much 20 hours of the day, you know, yeah. every day. You could put me, you could put me in that category. Okay. Yeah, I'll be there with you. Um, so reading is one of the few times that we really give ourselves over to thinking about someone else completely. Mm -hmm. And and so I think that that's like just the most beautiful thing about reading and for me about writing also is really putting my energy into knowing someone else and imagining what the world is like in their shoes for a minute. Um, and that's why I love reading because yeah. it takes me out of my head. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Uh, so can you talk a little bit just about your writing process? And I know that probably looks different between a novel and, you know, some of the, the other articles and things you've written, but what's your sort of uh, process like? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's developed over time and this book took me about four years to write. And so when wow. I started, my process was, there was no process. It right. was just right. chaos. Uh, but I had to get into a routine. Jack White, the musician, uh, talks a lot about the importance of discipline to a creative life, which seems like those two ideas are opposite, but that's really not true. The, the most important thing I could tell anyone that's trying to write a novel length work is that you have to find this self-discipline. Mm. So, and I had to do that for myself too. So after about two years <laughs> of chaos, yeah. I got into a routine where I would wake up every day at the same time. And I went and I tried to sit at my same table at this coffee shop about a mile from my house. And I wrote, and I try to still do this now from about eight in the morning until about noon. And then I pack it up, come home, do other things, and then get back, sit down. And from eight to noon, I write the next day. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times what I'll do is I'll, um, start in the morning the first thing I do is I reread what I wrote yesterday yeah. and I comb through that and then once I comb through that maybe I find a lot of problems and I focus on those during that rest of the writing time or I feel good about that and then I move on to writing the next section and then the next morning I show up I read that section I wrote yesterday and then keep going so it's, it's a lot of combing through sure you know hairy words and finding the knots and 
kind of trying to smooth them out. Yeah. So like now that it's a finished product, right? Have you read back through it extensively? You know, it's interesting. As an author, you end up having to reread your same manuscript. I should have kept a log of how many times. I mean, so many times. <laughs> it kind of got ridiculous. <laughs> um, so I have not read it. I will have, have probably about six months. Probably about been six months since I've read it straight okay. through. Okay. But now that I have this beautiful you know, book, I, I need to, and I'm going to, Yeah. um, but it's a little like, I mean, you become a better writer as you're writing, I believe. And so there are moments, even I'm sure any author feels this way. I hope other authors feel this way where they read their work and you're just like, Oh, like, you know, you see, you see your, your flaws probably yeah. bigger than other people do. For but, sure. um, but anyway, so I'm excited to look into reading it again. And um, mostly I'm just excited to share it and to to let these characters have a life outside of, you know, my world. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, right now you're in like the throes of it, right? I mean, of launching a book, of getting like stuff scheduled, of doing crazy podcasts, that sort of thing. <laughs> you know? This is, it's an honor to be on your crazy podcast. <laughs> oh, I, I thank you for that. I thank you for that. So what would you say to like maybe somebody who's in that sort of college age, like loves writing and, you know, what would you say to somebody in that time period about being a, a writer? Well, my friend Kim Green gave me some really good advice when I first was trying to decide whether to pursue writing. And she said, Claire, sit down and write for 30 days, whether that's for a blog or for yourself, but write something for 30 days straight every day. And if at the end of that 30 days, you still want to be a writer, then maybe you can be a writer. <laughs> I like that. Wow. That's good. I loved it. It was such a good chat one. And I'm a very, I know you know the Enneagram. I'm a very like achievement oriented. Okay. Person. Sure. Yeah. So I was like, task? Sure. I'll kill that task, like give it to me, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I wrote for 30 days and I got to the end of it and I thought, you know, I really love it. I love it more than I did the beginning of the month. So I would say that, I would say that to a college kid. I would also say to a college kid, go get a job, <laughs> go get a job and live in that job. And, you know, um, I have a friend here that just graduated college and she wants to be in film, wants to write uh, movies. She's working at a job she doesn't love. And I said, you know, the people that wrote The Office, the TV show, you know that they worked in a crappy office. Right. Somebody on that writing staff worked in a crappy office. For sure, no doubt. And that TV show wouldn't exist unless they'd had that mediocre job. Yeah. So don't discount what you consider a mediocre job because number one, it's going to pay your bills. And number two, it's going to give you fodder for a scene later on in a book that you want to write that you need you yeah. need that experience hmm. um so it gives you more than um you know more than you think yeah yeah great job on the advice that was just like Aww. off the top yeah you nailed it <laughs> nailed it okay um okay so we're on theology of hustle let's have this faith and work sort of conversation like how do you see your faith playing out in writing yeah it's really interesting. I mean, we did talk a little bit about, you know, would this book be a Christian book or not? Yeah. But I, you know, the Lord of the Lord is God of everything. You know, he's, he, he created this world. He created words, he created language. So for me, I, I really believe in the power of stories to awaken something in us that otherwise might stay asleep. Yeah. There are a lot of books that have, touched me and that I can look back on and and can um, remember how they made me feel and what they made me want out of life and for me as a writer I believe that God doesn't give everybody the gift of writing you know that's I think it's a it's a gift it's something you have to work at mm. not you know I didn't download this book from God by any means but the women that lived these lives that i you know, used as inspiration for this novel, none of them are writers. That's not the path they chose. And so, nor is it the gift that God gave them. So for that reason, they've entrusted me with 
what God did in their lives. And I'm the one that gets to write it down and then that gets to live on. And so, you know, I think writing can feel like a selfish career in some ways. It's pretty nice. I, I take my computer, I get my cup of coffee and I look at the computer screen and I do this with my fingers for (laughs) four hours every day. You know, that's sometimes I can feel guilty about it, Hmm. but then I remember that, my job as a writer in God's economy is to point people, all people, whether they have faith or not, toward the things in this world that are beautiful. And the things that are beautiful in this world are self-sacrifice. They are um, loving others over, over yourself. And they are turning for help when you need it. Like those are the moments in all storylines where you kind of tear up, you know? And that's because in our heart, we all know it's the gospel story. It's, I can't do this on my own. I wish I could, but I can't. And therefore, what do I do? That's the human experience. And um, I think that as a writer, I have a job that I get to put that on the page, you know? Yeah, so Uh, you're pointing people to the gospel through these stories, even if they don't, understand that that's exactly what you're doing. Right. And it's a truer story. My friend, Jonathan Rogers, who is a writer and I, and a teacher, a teacher of mine often talks about, we point people to truer stories than what the world is telling. Hmm. And so you watch, you know, Black Mirror or you watch, which is a great show, um, or you watch other shows on television and, and it's, you leave and you're like, oh, that was entertaining and interesting, but I feel horrible. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I feel yeah. hopeless. I feel like, what is the point of all this? And um, my hope as a writer is not to write sappy stories, but to write stories that leave you feeling like oh, there's a reason for this world and there's hope. Yeah. We all could use uh, a little more of that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially right now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a, an extent too, to where you bring, when you write people's stories and even if they're not actual people, like biographies that you're writing, you're bringing like dignity to the human experience and to humanity sort of in general, if that makes sense. Like, you know, God said it was good. And I think there is, there is the good, you know, and you're, you're bringing sort of uh, dignity to all that. And even in your, even in your novel, I really appreciated the character development of Danny, who's African-American, who has dealt with, you know, racism, right. in her life and, you know, her brother deals with racism and, you know, there's, uh, that storyline sort of developed out of all of this stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think Danny is based on some really wonderful women that have become really dear friends of mine. Mm-hmm. And it is really hard living in Nashville, Tennessee. You know, this is a city that is historically extremely segregated and has a history of, of slavery and, and has a history of racism. And, um, and it also was the, the place where um, the civil rights movement had a huge moment here with uh, lunch counter sit-ins. And, and so Nashville has a really complicated history. And it's difficult to find friends that look and think differently than me. Um, But this book in a lot of ways has opened my eyes to other people's experiences. And Mm -hmm. so just as much as I'm doing good in the world, (laughs) you know, let me like brush my, (laughs) um, you know, God has done work in me through this writing process. You know, Mm -hmm. he has introduced me to women that I otherwise might not have known. And, and they've been able to share their experiences with me. And I've been awakened to my own biases and my own moments of racism. And I am grateful that they are friends. And I, I remember when my husband and I began the adoption process, I called uh, a couple of my friends that I was just talking about. And like, how would you feel if I adopted a black baby? Like, what would that, yeah. is that okay with you? <laughs> you know, or like, not okay with, I'm not trying to get permission, but like, right. how does that make you feel? And would yeah. you be there with me? Would you help me? Pretty yeah. much is what I was asking them. Um, and thankfully they were all like, yeah, we'll help you yeah. get some lotion for that baby. You know, <laughs> like that baby needs lotion. And yeah. um, 
I, you know, they, they, my friends that, um, that have helped me through this writing process, they, um, they are, are women that I'm so grateful to know. And God brought them to my life because of this work he, he's asked me to do. So I think that that is, when I think about theology and hustle, you don't have to find your patch of grass. Like you don't have to go somewhere to find it. You're already there. Yeah. And then in that place, God can use you and can teach you and can grow you right in that spot. Mm. Um, I think a lot of times right now in the, in the world's view of hustle, it's all about going elsewhere, like right. going up, getting better and stepping on people and, and <laughs> like becoming the you you want to be and you do you and like, that's fine, but it's, it's not the way that I want to do things. Yeah. yeah. I want to be where God has put me and I want to be open to receiving the people and the, the tasks that he wants me to complete. So, cause you never know like what those relationships will turn into in the future. Yeah. Yep. Amen. That's good. That's good. It's funny. You mentioned two uh, African-Americans and adoption uh, on Tuesday. I launched an episode with two of my friends who have a salon that focuses on African-American hair and skin care for adoptive and foster families. I feel like I read a story about these. Oh, really? Possibly. Yeah. You might have, they've been uh, all over like the news and like, yeah, it's been crazy. So, but they're awesome. They come to all of our conferences and like do tutorials on braiding and, oh, cool. but it, it speaks to this larger conversation of, of race. Like you said, like, uh, a lot of white parents have adopted and, and fostered African-American children and have nobody in their lives that can speak right. into that culture, you know, and it's just super right. sad. So it's, that's like, it's a, a, I mean, that's a whole nother conversation about <laughs> adoption and about yeah. Yeah. interracial adoption. Yeah. And I, yeah. there's no way that I would do it justice right now over yeah. this conversation. And, um, but I, and, and our son, you know, people will be like, well, she ended up adopting a white baby. Well, whatever. He, he is a quarter African-American. <laughs> if anyone wants to like, fact check me or whatever, but, uh, but they shouldn't. Say, so, like, you know, so, yeah, please, <laughs> please shut up and just say my kid's cute. <laughs> it so. is, it is complicated. And, but at the same time, I'm grateful to live in a time where we are charged with thinking deeper about the things we say and the things we believe and, and what our children might need. You know, there was a, a long time in particularly in the Christian church where whether or not this was intentional, adoptive parents were kind of like, well, I'm saving you from, right. Right. you know, whatever. And I truly do believe that I, that Sam's life without us would have been a very difficult life. Yeah. I really believe that. And yet, I don't know for sure what his life would have like. I don't know that path. And so uh, the best thing that I can do is to try to keep as many bridges open to his culture and to his biological family and to his roots as possible. And Patrick and I learned all of that by taking the foster parenting classes here in Nashville. And so now that we're on this topic, I would just say anyone that's interested in adopting or foster care. I would say, go take your local foster parenting classes because you, your eyes will be open. And whether you choose to become a foster parent or not, you will walk away a better parent and a better spouse and a better like neighbor um, through that. So. Yeah. I just want to applaud. That was great. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. So good. So good. Uh, okay. We should probably, uh, I could sit here and talk to you about all this stuff forever, but uh, we should probably I know. Last two questions. Maybe we'll get on again when you release your next book, you know? Oh, please. So, Hopefully it'll yeah. be sooner than this. <laughs> it will be four years. Process. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. So my first question is, oh, what is the uh, strangest job that you have ever had? You know, you wrote me that email and I read this question yesterday and I started thinking about it and then I saw something shiny and I never figured out what my answer for you was going to be. All good. All good. Um, honestly, I think my strangest job, strangest. That's hmm. what we're going for here. Or whatever weird job that you've had, or like random. Weird job. 
Yeah. Um, I worked at this random restaurant in Clinton, South Carolina. I told you I moved from West Point to this podunk town. Right. And I wanted to go back to New York as often as possible. And I, my parents are like, you get 20 bucks a month kind of people. Sure. And so I was like, I'm getting a job as soon as I walk into town. You know, and this town has a McDonald's and a college and not much else, right? right. And I told my mom, I was 16 years old. And I'm like, mom, I'm going out to get a job. She's like, okay, honey, like, <laughs> good luck with that, you know? And I come home an hour later and I'm like, I got a job. I'm working tonight at the restaurant down the street. There was this one steakhouse in that, in that little neighborhood, Clinton. And I got a job there and it was weird. Like that place was weird. <laughs> um, I had a weird boss and the chef yelled at everybody and they gave out free rolls to people, you know, oh, at dinner. Yeah. Yeah. and um, I would eat them like off the tray in you the kitchen. On rolls I was starving. <laughs> And the dishwasher was this like large woman that was wonderful. And she kept looking at me and every day she'd go, girl, you going to get fat. Girl, you going to get fat. Oh <laughs> like, my you're not God. wrong, Linda. You're not wrong. I feel like um, restaurant work though. Yeah. You just, you know, you're in for a surprise no matter where you're at. It's always a funny, oh, thing, man. you know, so that's good. There that's was good. a lot of college kids that worked there with me and I was a high school kid. Uh, it was a bad, uh, it was some creepy. Dudes. Creepy. Creepy dudes, yeah. <laughs> That's generally how that goes. So, yep, yep. Yeah. Uh, okay, so finally, what is one piece of advice you would give to somebody looking to bring the kingdom of God more into their work? I say, read the Bible. Oh. Start your day in the Word. You yeah. know, um, I don't think there's any other way to do it, to be honest. And I'm not great at doing that myself, but. I think particularly in writing, when I start my day in the word, reading what God calls important, I can carry that with me through the day in a way that bleeds into my interactions with people. It bleeds into obviously my writing, but I just don't think there's any other way to be in communion with God unless you're reading his word. And I think that's it. Okay. I love it. I think that's, we try to complicate it and all that stuff. And it like is really simple, actually. I know. I think yeah. it is really simple. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, we, we have that privilege of having that word. There's centuries and centuries of, of Christians that didn't have the written Bible. Yeah. And so um, they, they found communion with God by telling those stories over and over again and by being with other believers. But I think that we discount the Bible way too much and believe that since we've read it once that yeah. we kind of get it. You yeah. know, we almost made it too easy. Right. So like, it's too accessible. I have like 18 of them in my house and like, you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. So yeah, I think it's, um, I think that's the way to do it. Yeah. Good. Okay. Yeah. Quick bonus question really fast. Yeah. Do you have a favorite narrative book in scripture? Oh, mm. like a story, like which, yeah. Yeah. you know, not like the gospel. Right, right. Well, I guess the gospel is oh, a mean, narrative. Yeah. Um, I love the book of Ruth. There it's you go. story yeah. of, you know, Naomi and Ruth. And the, the books Esther and the book Ruth both tell these stories and God is, I don't think God is that mentioned at all in the Esther story. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And I, I'm pretty sure God is not mentioned. There might be one. Cause I think Esther's the only one in scripture that doesn't actually mention like okay. God specifically. But both stories are very contained yeah. and extremely essential to the biblical, you know, ancestry of, of Christ. Yeah. Um, and they're focused on these women mm -hmm. and in really difficult situations. Um, and how they rise to the occasion. Like it's very in my wheelhouse, yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I do. Yes. <laughs> um, and I love Ruth's story because it's about a reverse adoption yeah. where Ruth, Ruth basically adopts Naomi, this mm -hmm. older woman who is a widow and um, they're both widows, but um, it's just awesome. I love that story. I'm kind of, my next novel is sort of 
inspired in a way by the Ruth story. Really? So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be an adoption related novel. Yeah. Uh, oh, my door just opened. But, um, <laughs> and Ruth, Ruth will be a big part of it. Yeah. I love it. We'll send that one my way. You know, I'm, I'm down. I'm excited. I will. Well, now that you're a novel reader. Now that I'm a, this fancy novel reader. <laughs> I know all the novel things, you know. <laughs> hey, Claire. I'm determined. Yes, right, right. Well, thanks so much. It was so good to chat with you. It's, uh, yeah. It's great to talk with you too, Curry. I really appreciate you having me on and for being excited about the book and um, sharing it with the world. I'm sharing it with the world. I'm putting it out on my little Instagram all the time. So Your corner of the universe. Here we go. <laughs> awesome. Thanks again. Thank you, Curry. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing from Claire. I hope you got out of this interview as much as I did. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I have a lot of insights, a lot to walk away with. I also have some fiction to go read, some novels. So I'm, I'm developing my list. I'm going to be updating you on uh, Instagram. So make sure you're following. Uh, I try with the stories, you know, every once in a while. So I'll, I'll let you know what I'm doing. If you uh, are prompted to read a, a novel, after this episode, I would love to hear about it. Uh, let me know. Love to hear what you're reading. If you have suggestions for me on what I should be reading, send me that too. I'm always in the in the mood for suggestions. Uh, I love that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, get connected. Let me know what you think. Uh, and until next time, get out there and hustle.